0: good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. I remember a lot of time was paid to commemorating the 500th anniversary of what is commonly called the Protestant Reformation. We made a big deal of the fact that it's kind of misleading to talk about it as merely one movement. Uh, it, was, it, was, it took place, it had different theological components, it took place in different lands, different leaders often competing with one another. Um. So that really you might want to talk about his as a refer- Protestant Reformations. Uh, but certainly the, the man most commonly associated with launching what is called the Reformation, Martin Luther. And he did so when he presented his 95 Theses for debate. And much of the theses focused on indulgences and the church's practice of indulgences. I can remember uh, early on in my Christian life, just thinking as an evangelical, just thinking, well, how wrong uh, the Catholic Church was to even have the idea of indulgences at all. Didn't that interfere with justification by faith? And then they sell indulgences. And years later, when I finally started trying to do some primary reading in the 16th century theology, I was kind of shocked and ashamed at how complex the question of indulgences was, and how many of the terms that Luther and his uh, opponents used, throwing back and forth, challenging one another, were words that I don't even use in my understanding of the spiritual life. Condine merit, for instance, for heaven's sake, what is all that about? Well, I came across a volume just recently which uh, looked Substantial, and it turns out it is. It's called indulgences. Luther, Catholicism, and the imputation of merit, and it's by Dr. Mary Mormon, uh, who is the author uh, is the author of the book. She also holds a uh, juris doctor in law with a focus on religion, religious systems, religious legal systems, from Boston University. Uh, completed her work in medieval systematic theology at Yale and SMU, and uh, she's lectured in both law and religion at Boston University, Southern Methodist University, and University of New Haven, my hometown. Her most recent articles have appeared in the Journal of Religion, Conflict and Peace, the Wesleyan Theological Journal, and uh, the anthology Seeing the Medieval Realms of Faith and Visions for Today. And Mary, it's great to make your acquaintance.
1: Well, it's so nice to meet you. Thank you for having me.
0: When uh, when did you first get interested in the Catholic Church?
1: Well, I think I grew up um, being interested in the Catholic Church. I live in south-central Texas, and so the missions, the culture of beautiful Catholic life were all around me as a child growing up in a faithful evangelical home. Yeah. Um, it was in college that I really began to inquire into the Catholic faith. I was inspired by very devout Catholic faculty and friends. It's funny. I had a poster with a picture of Martin Luther on it in my dorm room (laughs)
2: um,
1: because I was, uh, I was a very enthusiastic evangelical. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Um, Began studying theology as an undergraduate. And I think um, by God's grace, the road into the Catholic church was inevitable. It took, it took years. Um, for me to finally come home, um, mm-hmm. but I was I was guided by God's grace along the way, and, and I was praying about what I wanted to share about my conversion story. And one thing that popped into mind that I have not shared with anyone before is um, I had an experience of the Catholic Church that is very very relevant to to my writing the book that we're talking about today. Um, I was on an evangelical ministry team. In college. Mm-hmm. We'd taken a week to fast and pray about community and unity within the group of believers that we worked with. And so we were thinking a, a lot about what it meant to be the body of Christ. And we were fasting, and I'd gone to, gone to a barbecue, and I wasn't eating. I was just there to participate. I was standing by a tree, and they had the opening invocation at this gathering. And I, all of a sudden, I had a vision. I closed my eyes, and I saw Jesus and the church in this embrace. And it was so, so beautiful, so passionate, and so powerful. It changed my life then and there. Um, And I, I think, began this quest for finding that embrace between Jesus and his people. And I think as an evangelical, I always thought of that in terms of the eschaton, right? That was going to happen at the end of time. We're all hoping and waiting for that embrace together, and then it was when I went to Catholic Mass and realized, oh my goodness, this embrace happens <laughs> at every consecration yes. of the Eucharist, and it's happening here and now every day in the world, and I want to be part of that. So that's um,
0: beautiful. Oh. That
1: was sort of an essential moment that led, <clears throat> you know, to my considering. Indulgences later, because I was really interested in the Church as the spouse of Christ and the, the spousal role of each individual within the church and in mm-hmm. our, our intimate relationship with our Lord yeah. so yeah. that's the story.
0: so I mean <clears throat> so part of your return to the, or part of your entering into the Catholic Church was uh, a matter of uh, realizing the intimacy between Jesus the head and his body, the church on earth. So did you believe that there ought to have been visible unity between Christian groups?
1: Oh, I I believe that Jesus wanted that visible unity between Christian groups. I was um, sort of passionate about pursuing that in whatever way I could. Even as an undergraduate, I remember visiting Rome with family and friends and just bursting into tears at St. Peter's because nobody seemed to get it, you know, how—how— How urgently our Lord prayed for that unity yes. between believers, yeah. and and how sad it is that that has not happened, and how um, I mean nothing diminishes His glory in the world, yeah. but how how much more glorious His testimony would be if we were currently that one united body that um, that He intends.
0: Yeah. It was it was a major reason I resigned my pastorate. I was an evangelical pastor for five years, and one of the major reasons I I, I, I stopped seeing any justifiable reason for our separate and independent ecclesiastical existence. And I just thought, why am I here? <laughs> did, did, did Jesus institute a church or didn't he? I mean, did did, did he did he somehow not think about it? Um, and it, it uh, eventually that desire for unity uh, was—actually, and that that had been planted in me right at the time of my adult conversion. I always thought there should be and prayed for it. But indulgences, you made your way to indulgences from there. So you were looking at, uh, again, the explosion of the 16th century. And uh, let's just begin. What the heck are indulgences in the first place? And and what is it that Luther was fundamentally— or what did he begin fighting against?
1: Right. So the Catechism defines an indulgence as a remission of the temporal punishment that is owed for our sins, um, that is owed to us for our sins. Um, it's a remission of the debt that we owe and um, a remission of the punishments that are are owed to us as our just due. Um, so an indulgence is really... a a, a kind of a, maybe even a clumsy way of talking about the fact that God covers us Mm -hmm. in His mercy, even as He restores us when we return to Him. Um, These two things happen simultaneously and irreducibly. He covers us and He heals us. And so an indulgence is a way of talking about that act of God covering us making up for our losses, calling things that are not as though they were, because only He can recreate us and restore us. Mm -hmm. And so um, He covers us during that process of our restoration. Um, And, you know, He he says, charge it it to my account, as St. Paul says in in the book of Philemon in the New Testament. Mm -hmm. Um, And of course, our Lord's merits are super abundant. They are eternal. They are more than enough. To compensate for all the sins in the world, and so our Lord says to the Father, "Charge, charge their debts to my account." And an indulgence is is a symbolic way, I think, of, of explaining that whole theology. When Martin Luther tried um, to enter into the conversation about the theology of indulgences, he entered a conversation that was um, that was emerging in many ways in the 16th century.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, there was a tradition of the martyrs making special intercessions for sinners who were waiting to be restored to the church that went back to the third century. And all along, there was this sense that Jesus is covering of us and our covering of each other in a way could be expressed um, in a practical way in indulgences. Hmm. Um, but the theology was really developing um, when Martin Luther entered the conversation. And so he, he proposed a set of questions that um, mimicked questions that were being presented in other major centers of Europe. Um, you know, how, how do they work? Should they work? What is the role of the Pope? What is the role of the bishops um, in this aspect of repentance? And the conversation, um, I think, went awry because Luther um, proposed that the authority of the Pope should be construed as being less than what the Catholic Church was proposing mm-hmm. at the time. Mm-hmm. Um and that created you know that opened a door for the political movements that were behind the protestant movement to step in and you know they made Luther kind of a um a major figure for their their goals and and the rest is history.
0: So had Luther uh not received the political support uh that he received uh do you think that uh, we would have had uh, would we have had a Protestant Reformation uh, without politics? Would there have been a theological revolution? Or was the politics really what drove it?
1: Oh, I think that's such a great question. I mean, many significant scholars have suggested that it was it was the princes and the political movements who mm-hmm. wanted independence from Rome, who had always wanted independence from Rome in some ways, um, that really made the Protestant movement happen. Obviously, there have always been schisms, in the Church, because mm-hmm. there have always been humans in the Church, and <laughs>
2: That's
0: right. there
1: has always been... Um, but, I mean, the Church and her members, there's plenty of sinfulness um, running around, and and um, the enemy of our souls wants there to be schism. So, definitely there have always been schisms. I think... Um, honestly, I think in the 16th century some of the most significant theological junctures would have turned into interesting theological contributions to yeah. the churches understanding of herself. Yep. And would not have become schisms. I think yep. I think Calvin and Luther might have taken the church's conversations in very fruitful directions if they had remained within the corporate body of the church and remained in submission to her pastors.
0: I, I agree with you. My guest, Dr. Mary Mormon, is the author of Indulgences, Luther Catholicism and the Imputation of Merit. We're going to continue the conversation. And we will talk about the quote sale of indulgences and Tetzel. Uh, and so stay with us. We got more coming up. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. My guest, Dr. Mary Mormon, is author of Indulgences. Luther, Catholicism, and the Imputation of Merit, published by Emmaus. It, uh, it's really a thorough look at this uh, dispute. And we're talking now about, uh, again, Luther's 95 Theses. Uh, also, the, again, Calvin, Luther, and other of the so called magisterial reformers were uh, cre- creative thinkers in many ways. And had, not, had there not been uh, the political dimension, of the so-called Reformation, that these men may have contributed to the church's uh, understanding. There would have been a lot of give and take back and forth had this remained a theological dispute, but it became, of course, a deeply political and uh, involved questions of uh, authority. Luther and the sale of indulgences. When the story is popularly told, we're, we always get to see this rotund monk, uh, Tetzel, running around, in, in, getting people to throw money into a pot in order to get their for their loved one's souls released from purgatory. And uh, Luther is always presented as despising that. He's shown as the heroic figure standing against this uh, um, really corrupt practice. What's, what's the reality? Was that a corrupt practice? Had it gone off the rails? Did it need to be uh, pulled back? What was right? What was wrong? Well,
1: that's a great question. Honestly, my first response is, no, I don't think there was this um, slew of corrupt practices surrounding indulgences. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Some scholars might disagree with me, especially at the local popular level um, in the church, you know, in the 16th century. I mean, again, (laughs) there's always room for corruption. Yes. But I don't think that the apparent sale of indulgences um, was was a, a huge um, scandal, um, it caused some scandal, and therefore anything that looked like the sale of indulgences was um, rebuked by the Council of Trent um, following the sixteenth century mm-hmm. um, but so I think you have to look at a couple of things when we talk about when we talk loosely about the sale of indulgences. first of all, indulgences are rooted as a practice in the logic of the covenant. Blessed John Paul II made this explicitly clear in his preaching on indulgences. And when, it, when we attain an indulgence, we offer an act of our faith to God in return for His mercy being imputed to us. So there is a covenantal exchange in indulgences for sure. But mm-hmm. covenant goes throughout Scripture. It goes throughout our tradition. Yep. In the Mass, we offer to the Lord what He has given to us first, and then in return, we receive him. Um, that, that is the logic of the covenant. Biblically, covenant extends from Abraham to Jesus to the New Testament saints. They're all making transactions with God in in faith, in his mercy, and in the Lord's humility to transact with us. And I say that making quotation marks, to transact with us. Yes, that yes. is his, his humility, his act of, of love and deference. Um, for us as his creatures, um, so I think we have to acknowledge the beauty of the theology of covenant that undergirds indulgences and not shy away from it. Secondly, when it comes to money, I think there's more work to be done on this. But many significant scholars, biblical scholars, have pointed out that our Lord used economic metaphors and referred to money in a way that you know he didn't he didn't. Um, Refused to do that right. you know he talked about buying and selling the kingdom
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, and so I think that that should um cure us of our embarrassment of talking in terms of buying and selling, and another thing I think to think of we need to think about is philosophically, our money really represents who we are, and sometimes in a more vivid way than any other aspect of our lives mm-hmm. the way we handle our money, the way we earn it, what we do with it um So I think all of those things have to be um, maybe rethought in our conversation about the apparent sale of indulgences in the 16th century. But again, um, Trent addressed that problem knowing that it was, you know, the apparent sale was causing scandal, obviously among believers and misunderstanding. And so money was completely removed um, from the practice of obtaining indulgences. Some social historians have pointed out, though, that before the 16th century, all of that money that was contributed to the building of hospitals and the building of bridges and roads, development of towns in exchange for indulgences, built modern Europe, <laughs> yeah. and,
0: you know, um,
1: so it is what it is.
0: Uh, the, the theology behind—you see some linkage between Luther's theology and indulgences, not entirely hostile— you do this along the lines of imputation, is that it?
1: That's right. Um I talk about the theme of imputation um that Luther loved so much and right. rightly so. It's a beautiful and consoling doctrine.
0: The imputation um, of Christ's righteousness to us.
1: Exactly. Yes. The imputation of Jesus himself to us and yes. his merits yes. to us. Um to cover to cover our neediness when we have nothing of our own to offer. Um that's basic. To the gospel, um, and had been instantiated in a very vivid way in the Catholic Church's practice of indulgences, because there, aside from the sacraments, very much still dependent on the Church's sacraments, but aside from them, we have this practice where we offer our faith in exchange for Jesus's imputation of himself to us. Um, and Luther took that aspect, I believe, and inflated it into an entire system of salvation, separated from the Church's corporate body and from her sacraments. Um, but it was never meant to be separated. It was a theme that was alive and well within the life of the Church, um, and was all, it was always there. Um, and it, it, this theme of imputation pops up in other aspects of Catholic theology and practice as well. Um, but, but what I really hope to bring forward in this book is that it is an acceptable theme within Catholic theology. It's an acceptable and, um, and celebratory doctrine of our faith.
0: Yeah, it it is it's still largely neglected, I think. I think it's, for for even many Catholics, it's it's um they accept it's there, they know that uh, the Pope Paul VI uh, again revised uh, teaching on indulgences, uh, but they stay away from it because it has such a it's got it's kind of in in their mind. I think it still has that kind of ickiness. Um from this, these Reformation images. You put you put this in a nuptial context, though, as well. Covenantal um, imputation is involved. Now, give me the nu- nuptial angle on this.
1: Sure. Well, that's my favorite part. And again, it goes back to this um, biblical and um, doctr- doctrinal teaching of the Church that this, the Church is the Bride of Christ. She is his spouse. And again, that was made very clear to me in a vivid and personal way um, when I was beginning my theological studies, and I I think it ties in so much to indulgences because again, in indulgences, you have this exchange between the individual and Christ, and I'm I I was very curious to see how indulgences reflected the fundamental doctrine I was working from. That the Church has this exchange of promises with Jesus, and it is nuptial in character. I mean, that's what Saint Paul makes very clear when he talks about the spousal relationship, the fundamental thing is Jesus and the church. Mm-hmm. Um, they're they're giving of self to each other completely. Um, and so in indulgences, I think it, it's so beautiful. But here we have a part, again, apart from the sacraments, you just, it's an exchange of vows, really, um, that each individual can make, and, um, for his restoration after he has sinned. He can promise something to our Lord in exchange for our Lord's imputation um, of his merits to cover his losses. Um, and that mirrors the Church's exchange of herself to receive Jesus' self um, in their ongoing nuptial relationship.
0: So when we think of indulgences then, it isn't as though we're kind of paying God off to give us something that otherwise he wouldn't be willing to give. We're, we're offering ourselves, because of this covenantal and nuptial union, and God responds. Is that the way to look at it?
1: Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And I think, furthermore, it's the individual's opportunity to mirror and ratify the larger corporate nuptial relationship that the church has—that's
0: that's good. Yeah, expand on that a bit because that's right. This is this holiday this here, the, the treasury of merit.
1: Mm-hmm. Right. Well, the church—the church's life is lived in her members. Right. It's primarily lived in the life of her head and in her heart, which is Our Lady. Mm-hmm. Um, that is the perfect union. But in you know, in ongoing time and space, the church's life is lived in her members, and her members are contributing daily to this treasury of merit, you know, all the righteousness of Jesus in his saints. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think in in our lives, in our comfortable free lives here um, in North America, especially I'm calling, you know, talking to you from Texas, Mm -hmm. we enjoy so many things. Our lives are so easy, but I think so often of the lives of believers in other parts of the world who are suffering for their faith at this moment, and they are contributing I think, so heroically to that treasury of merit. Um, and it, we just look at our history, too, all of the saints and martyrs who have contributed to our treasury of merit. And it's always Jesus's merits in us that are sort of being um, continually enacted and lived out and stored up in the church. And those merits are available for weak and lazy sinners who haven't done anything that heroic lately, you know, which is yeah. so beautiful—the yeah. sharing that is made possible by the Holy Spirit in the United Body of Christ.
0: Now, you mentioned earlier that uh, the, the theology of indulgences was developing, and the language of indulgences was developing. Had Luther been able to hear what you just explained, do you think he would have been? Would he have? Would he have objected? Uh, well, how do you think he would have reacted to the kind of fuller understanding of indulgences that we now have access to that he didn't? Oh, I
1: like to think he would have been very favorable.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> um,
1: and I honestly think he would be. I mean, if I could—and and that's what I say in the, in the beginning of my book, that I want people to think of Martin Luther charitably here and— um this is a conversation, it's kind of a conversation with him, it's it's a conversation with um, the popes and bishops who have written most recently on indulgences, Mm -hmm. theologians who have written most recently on indulgences, and and I hope this book is is a contribution to that ongoing conversation, maybe a contribution to the Church's understanding of what indulgences are, but yes, I I think Luther would have chimed right in and been pleased, and I think especially, um, I think of Again, Blessed St. John Paul II's sermons on indulgences. I think especially those, Martin Luther would have read them and said, my work is done. Yeah. (laughs) All the answers are
2: right here.
0: (laughs) There's no more separate reason for our ecclesiastical existence here, you guys. Let's get back in line (laughs) with the Church. Exactly. Well, Father Newhouse did that. Uh, Maybe other Lutherans will as well. Mary, great job, by the way. I really appreciate the contribution. Uh, I don't know anything quite like it. So uh, we'll talk again, though, okay? Thank you so much. Thank you. Dr. Mary Mormon, it's called Indulgences Luther, Catholicism, and the Imputation of Merit.